Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Hey, we actually get to start today with the fact that there may be some surprising good news for a change coming out of Congress, especially for Americans with children, especially low-income families with children, who ironically, some of you know this, some of you experienced it, saw child poverty rates drop dramatically at the start of the pandemic, but have since gone back up. For more than a year now, Democrats in Congress have been trying to strike a deal with Republicans to revive the policy known as the child tax credit, or at least extend the child tax credit that still exists. In exchange, in a deal that is reportedly very close now to being struck, Republicans want to renew some corporate tax breaks that had recently expired themselves. Well, yesterday, two of the main lawmakers on tax issues These are Senate Finance Chair Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon, and House Ways and Means Chair Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, announced the two parties, at least the leaderships, had struck a deal. Now, the New Deal is, well, kind of the same as the one they had tried to pass over a year ago, at least the Democrats did. Democrats would get a limited version of a child tax credit in exchange for greater incentives for domestic research and development and faster depreciation of certain kinds of capital investments for business. I know that sounds wonky, but it affects a lot of people directly, and we'll explain. But by no means is this a done deal. What? You're talking about a deal, but it's not a done deal? Yeah, Congress has a tight deadline to implement any changes to the tax code that would be effective for the 2023 tax filing season, uh, which is upon us from now until April 15th. So joining me now to break down the negotiations and who they stand to benefit is Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer at Vox, who wrote an explainer on a lot of this. Dylan, thanks for coming on with us. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me, Brian. And we'll get into some of the specifics of the Wyden-Smith deal, named after those two lawmakers I mentioned in the intro. Uh, But first, what basically, for people who don't know, is the child tax credit? So the child tax credit has had a long and sort of strange life. Um, It began in 1997 as a a middle-class tax cut um, that was agreed to by Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. Uh, basically, Gingrich wanted uh, to cut capital gains taxes for sort of wealthy people with investments who pay taxes on it. Um, I think he was aware that it would look bad if he did that without doing anything for middle class families. Uh, and so he and Clinton cut a deal um, on a credit that was just 400 bucks uh, for uh, families that owed taxes uh, and uh, uh, with children. Um, and so it started there and it was a very modest credit. Um, and it's just continually expanded. It was expanded a little bit in the 2001 uh, tax cuts by George W. Bush. It was expanded a lot in 2009 uh, by Obama as part of the stimulus. And then that was extended. Um, and it really uh, was expanded pretty dramatically. It was doubled, actually, uh, in 2017 under the Trump um, uh, tax cuts uh, to become sort of the main tax break for for families with with kids, but it always had a limitation um, that it was it was meant for families with earnings and initially was meant for families that owed taxes. 
And that excluded a lot of people at the bottom. And uh, we can get into what happened in 2021, but a lot of the fight on the Democratic side has been to to take it from just being a tax break for for middle class, uh, uh, upper middle class families to one that actually targets the poor. Yeah. Do talk about what happened in 2021 or generally during the pandemic. Uh, some regular listeners know we've had Congressman Richie Torres from the Bronx on the show several times talking about this. Uh, he represents the poorest, most low-income congressional district in America, and he said the impact of the pandemic-era child tax credit on po- uh, poverty rates, child poverty rates in his district was dramatic. So talk about that. Sure. Um, and so so one piece of international context that's useful to know here is that most countries around the world, rich countries, uh, have what's called a child allowance. And so that's that's money that's paid to parents, usually without regard to income, um, for being parents. And the U.S. has never had this. And there's been an effort by anti-poverty advocates for a while to try to turn the child credit into this um, by, by making it not based on income at all, sending it out monthly, just making it a regular check. Um, and New York listeners might be interested to know that a lot of the effort uh, behind the scenes was done by by people in New York. Uh, Columbia has a lot of researchers who worked on this. Um, there's a guy named David Harris, who's a New York-based philanthropist and activist, who who I think is is the real unsung hero of this. Um, but they were able to persuade the Biden administration to include a measure in the 2021 stimulus. So this is the, the second year of the pandemic. Biden has just become president. Uh, they they want to do a new round of stimulus checks to everybody. But activists in, in, on the outside and in Congress convince him to to increase the child tax credit from two thousand dollars to up to uh, thirty six hundred dollars for parents of young kids and three thousand dollars for for parents of older kids, and to make it what's called fully refundable. Um, that might sound a little wonky, but it just means everybody gets it, um, no matter how poor you are. Um, and it arranged for for at least half the year for it to be sent out as a monthly check. So from July to December twenty twenty one. Parents were getting checks in the mail as opposed to getting sort of a big lump sum in their their tax return uh, come March or April of the next year. Yeah, um, that's, that's different, the checks in the mail during the year, the monthly checks. Absolutely, yeah. It, it changes how people uh, interact with it, how they spend it. Um, and it had a huge, huge impact um, that uh, I think child poverty fell uh, quite dramatically Um I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but but uh, at least a third, uh, maybe more like a half um, in in that just that year. Um, it's a little hard to parse out because a lot of things were happening in 2021, as listeners remember. Um, stimulus checks were going out. Uh, the economy was kind of returning. It was a really dramatic time. But I think uh, poverty experts would agree that that this measure was very targeted at, at people at the bottom and and made a big difference. And then it went away. And then it went away. If it had cut child poverty so dramatically, why did it go away? Why did they allow it to go away? So I think it's it's worth underlining how dramatic a policy shift this was. Um, in in the 1990s, some listeners may remember um, there was a huge fight over welfare reform, and and what that fight was about was a program that gave cash uh, to parents of children without an expectation that they work. Um, and this was considered so controversial and so politically toxic for the Clinton administration uh, that Clinton signed a bill that effectively uh, eliminated that program. Um, There's a lot of opposition. Uh, Pat Moynihan memorably said that we would be seeing children uh, freezing to death on, on subway grates. Um, we didn't see that in part because the economy in the late 90s was really good. 
Um, but uh, I think people had internalized a lesson that you can't just give money for nothing. Um, that that that's that's how Democrats lose. That's how Republicans get us. Is that they they point out welfare queens and other people they think are unfairly benefiting from this. And different. And lot, just to go back to something that you said uh, a few minutes ago and tie it together so different than in other Western industrialized countries we like to compare ourselves to, where the idea of government checks to families with children as a fairly routine thing is not controversial, correct? Absolutely. And I think also different from American history. Um, the, the story of, of child benefits is also sort of the history of 20th century feminism, um, that the first programs we had like this um, were called mother's pensions, and they were passed in the 1920s for for World War I widows, hmm. um, because the assumption in the 20s was uh, if you're a widow of someone who died in the war uh, and you have children, you shouldn't be expected to work because women generally didn't work. And so we'll give you money for nothing so that you don't work. And then eventually that program evolved. And by the 70s and 80s, the assumption was women should work, even if they're single parents. Um, and, and so what was the point of the program in the beginning, its major flaw and what it got attacked for. But to, to fast forward a bit to 2021, um, I think people had thought we had moved past this. And, and I think ad- activists thought we had sort of moved past welfare reform politics and could, could give people money for being parents. Um, and I think they were over optimistic. And there were, were people, I think Joe Manchin in the Senate most loudly, um, but I think a lot of people in the Democratic coalition thought this was going too fast um, and that uh, that they were not actually comfortable with setting up a program that looked like they were reviving cash welfare. And uh, it became clear that uh, extending it beyond 2021, um, there just weren't the votes. I think it was also a context of it was an emergency and this had been passed as part of an emergency program. And that made it a little harder to extend because if the initial argument was we need this because this is a unique moment and then you're saying, well, I want to make it permanent. Well, was it a unique moment or was was this something that you want as a permanent policy? Yeah, it's funny when you talk about how this ties to the history of feminism and the history of welfare reform. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the let's say the post Clinton years when they did away with that um, subsidy known as aid to families with dependent children that you were talking about before for low-income women, that traditional conservatives, we could call them traditionalist conservatives, were arguing this kind of paradoxical thing that these middle-class mothers who were out in the workforce in the name of feminism, they're abandoning their children and they should go back home Right. So middle class women in the paid workforce should go back home. But low income women, especially single low income women, they should be forced to work by mm-hmm. government policy. What a paradox. But that's where we where we kind of landed. Or I guess we landed where just about everybody um, who wanted to and others who just needed to economically were going out to the workforce. But there was there was that paradox that was front and center in conservative ideology for a while. Absolutely. And and I think it it both fed on and, and sort of revealed some cleavages within conservatism. So there's there's religious conservatives who care a lot about the traditional family. There's uh, free market conservatives who uh, want lower taxes, lower uh, benefit programs. Uh, 
in Aid to Families with Dependent Children, they had a, an enemy they could both agree on, um, that it, it did have significant marriage penalties. Um, it did sort of implicitly favor single mothers over, over uh, partnered couples. And so traditional religious conservatives hated it for that reason. And it was a major benefit program. And so uh, the free marketers hated it for that reason. Um, but sometimes uh, the, the alliance would come apart. Um, there's a, an amazing book called American Dream by, by Jason DePaul uh, that's a history of welfare reform that I recommend listeners check out. Um, but one of the most remarkable moments in it is when uh, Republicans in Congress want to pass a bill that would ban for life all government benefits to uh, women who have a child before the age of 21, just hmm. sort of a blanket ban on on any benefits to, to teen or, or early 20s mothers. And they didn't pass it, not because of uh, opposition that this was cruel or something, but because anti-abortion groups begged them to, to not pass it because they, they understood that if you passed a law like that, it would lead to a surge in teen abortions. And so uh, even throughout that period. And, and aren't, aren't there some conservatives who in some states argue against the child marriage laws where you have to be a certain age in order to even legally get married, which, you know, those laws are meant to prevent the exploitation of girls. Um, but some conservatives say, no, you know, this should be up to the families, up to the choice. And so there's another paradox, arguing for legal young teenage marriage, but then prohibiting benefits to those same girls if they have kids. Absolutely. And and it's an, it's interesting in that... Um, you don't see these paradoxes to the same degree in other places. Um, uh, Israel has really interesting welfare politics in that an overwhelming share of, of low-income families there are Haredi or, or ultra-Orthodox. Um, and so you have a, a, a synergy behind them wanting more welfare benefits for families with kids because they have a lot of kids. Um, and uh, you see that to some degree in Utah. Utah has a, a fairly generous welfare state for, for a Republican state in the U.S., uh, because Mormon families have have a lot of kids and, and ah, have sort of specific needs. Yeah, and you were talking about the international comparisons. Someone just um, posted a comment to me that says, "I just saw a vlog, a video blog, by a knitter living in Finland, who's pregnant, and she received a care package from the government full of goods for a baby. Absolutely blew my mind." This person writes, "It was full of clothes, bedding, and other little essentials." So again, an international contrast, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think that's that's called the baby box program, and I think a few cities in the U.S. I think New York and D.C. have, have experimented with it. Um, part of what's fun about that is that the box that Finland actually sends all these goods in uh, is usable as a crib, um, that it's it's a safe oh. uh, a place for newborns to sleep. So that it's doing double duty. Really interesting. And, and I even think about the term child tax credit in this context. Like it's somehow politically toxic to say the government is giving money, like the word subsidy, um, to families with children. But if you call it a tax credit, uh, then other people don't react like, oh, they're taking my money and giving it to other families. Why aren't those families as self-sufficient as I am if you call it a subsidy? But if you call it a tax credit, then the politics of that term are, oh, well, the government isn't taking as much of people's money. That's a good thing. Yeah? Right. And I think this, this applies in contexts uh, beyond the child credit and, and child poverty um, 
what this is being paired with uh, as well is um, what's paying for it is a rollback of a, a COVID program called the Employee Retention Tax Credit, which was a credit to businesses to to keep people uh, as, as on their books uh, during 2020 and 2021. Um, that doesn't have to be a tax credit. They could have just had a, a subsidy program that businesses apply to that they give them money to keep people employed. But it was implemented as a tax credit because I think the U.S. has a lot of experience implementing social programs through taxes, and and because if they sell it as a tax break, that that seems more appealing to businesses and and to sort of lazy fair uh, activists than if it's just sort of a straight government subsidy for businesses. It, it makes it seem like you're you're taking less from them rather than giving them something. So, listeners, who has a question or perhaps a personal experience to share? regarding the child tax credit or these business tax credits uh, that may be dealt in exchange uh, for extending the child tax credit in this new deal in Congress that's being struck by at least one Democrat and one Republican, and we'll see if it goes through, and doing a great job of explaining this to us, as Vox often does, as they do explainers so well, is Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer at Vox. So listeners, your experiences, personal stories, questions, comments, welcome at 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call or text 212 WNYC 433-9692. I guess one thing we should say, in addition to what we've already said about the child tax credit, before we get a little more into the business tax side of the deal, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, this deal would be about expanding the current child tax credit, not going back to the more generous subsidies at the height of the pandemic, Correct. That's correct. Um, so I think one way uh, to think about this is uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which uh, is a, a slightly left-leaning group that does studies of, of budget policy. They estimate that this deal, the, the White and Smith deal, would lift about 400,000 children out of poverty uh, uh, this year in 2024. Um, they had estimated that the 2021 credit, um, the, the early Biden credit, um, lifted about 3 million Um children out of poverty each year. So 400,000 versus 3 million. Um, it's a lot smaller. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's maybe maybe a sixth the, the size. Um, and it's also sort of different in philosophy. Uh, the philosophy of the 2021 credit was uh, everyone gets cash no matter what. We send it monthly. Um, it, it's not based on whether you have earnings or not. This is very much based on whether you have earnings. Um, what it does is it increases the benefit relative to how much earnings you have. Um, that it, in the the parlance of of tax wonks, it phases in faster, um, and that matters. And that that could mean thousands more dollars in the hands of uh, families earning ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, that really matters. Um, but it's not sort of a huge game changer the way that the the credit from a few years ago was. So do you know how much this version is projected to lift kids out of poverty compared to what the studies found happened in 2021, which you said it cut child poverty from a third to a half, according to the experts? Yeah. So this is not not anywhere near that level of impact. Um, I, I would, um, my, my back of the envelope guess would be 
maybe a five to ten percent decrease in um, in, in child poverty. Um, that's not nothing. That matters a lot to those kids. And I should also emphasize that when we're talking about reducing poverty, we're talking about the number of kids who who go above a certain line. Um, and going above that line really matters. But being closer to that line also matters. And there's there's millions more kids who will be less poor um, because they get this money, uh, even if they're still below the poverty line, um, their lives will be better. Um, so it's significant, um, but it's not uh, it's not the, the credit that uh, anti-poverty advocates and, and some Democrats have been fighting for for a long time. It's right. uh, it's very much a, a partial measure. And that kind of implies a whole other conversation, which is why should anybody who works full time in the work in the workforce in the paid workforce um, be under the poverty line? Why aren't the minimum wage laws, living wage laws, whatever we want to call them, enough to guarantee that if you have a full time job, you are not in poverty in the United States? But that's a related but different discussion. Yeah. And 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 so how many people fall through the cracks? In this respect, you write about two in five American households owe zero dollars in income taxes uh, or get money back on net. It reminds me of, you know, one of the reasons Mitt Romney lost the presidential election in 2012 to Barack Obama uh, because he got caught on tape saying that 47 percent of Americans were basically mooches because they made too mu- too little money to pay income taxes. Um that's similar to the two and five figure, that's 40% that, that you cite. So that is to say enough people are poor in America that their, inc- their federal income tax bill is zero, uh, that it equals 40%. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think Mid and I are getting that number from the exact same place, uh, which is uh, figures put out by, by the Tax Policy Center. Um, it was 47% when he was talking. It's it's 40% now. I think part of what was ironic about him saying that is that um, I think Republicans deserve some degree of credit for, for that number being so high. Um, one of the things the Trump tax credits did, for instance, is that they more than doubled uh, the standard deduction. Um, and so uh, for a, a married couple now, um, you get a standard deduction of $27,700. Um, I know this because I was, I was working on my taxes earlier. Um, and, uh, and so if you earn less than that as a married couple, no income taxes, and then you can get credits on top of that, like the child credit, um, you, uh, um, there are other deductions and and things you can add. Um, and that all put together, um, results in a lot of people not owing another uh, group to mention are retirees. Um, some social security benefits are taxable. A lot aren't. Um, some pensions are, are taxable. A lot aren't. Uh, if you have Roth savings, uh, that's generally not taxable. Um, and and so all these measures, many of which were supported by Republicans as part of, of broader tax cut packages, have added up to um, a significant share of Americans not owing uh, income taxes. Um, I feel obliged to say here the uh, many of these, many, if not most of these people pay payroll taxes. Um, almost all of them pay sales taxes on a, uh, on a local right. level. Right. Um, uh, and so I, I think the implication of mooching is, is, uh, is not fair. Um, but it does raise questions about programs like the child tax credit and whether they should be limited to people who, who owe taxes if 
um, the share of people who don't is is large and and has risen a lot in recent decades. So you've been comparing the United States to European countries in this respect, and we are lucky enough to be getting a call from Europe. Here is Mari in Switzerland. You're on WNYC. Hi, Mari. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in this topic because um, we are immigrants from the U.S. to Switzerland, and our family used to get a child tax credit for our daughter when she was living with us. Uh, she's now uh, older than 18, and she moved back to the U.S., but for the three years she was here, we got money back from the government. And it is treated as totally normal and a great policy to encourage people to have kids and to make things a little bit easier for them. So I'm a fan. <laughs> Mari, thank, thank you very much. Uh, Brett in Brooklyn wants to expand the conversation a little bit, I think, from this one particular kind of child credit or subsidy uh, to, uh, to the broader category. Is that right, Brett? Hi, you're on WNYC. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, yes, I was wondering if uh, the concept of universal basic income would be more politically palatable to Americans than just uh, cash grants or checks each month. Brett, thank you very much. Universal basic income. Some people may remember Andrew Yang ran for president on that platform four years ago. Obviously, he didn't make it. Uh, but universal basic income, which some people say is needed because of automation, um, you know, chasing jobs out of the human economy and for various other reasons. How, how about UBI as more or less acceptable? Uh, I would guess it's less because that's kind of the same thing, but much bigger and less targeted than the child tax credit for low income families. Um, yeah, I, I share your um, your intuition on this, Brian. Um, I, and I think one place you can look is just around the world. There, there are a couple of, of truly universal basic incomes. Um, Alaska pays out an oil dividend of a few thousand dollars a year to everyone, sort of man, woman, and child. Um, Iran, interestingly, has, has started doing that in recent years with their their oil money. Um, but it's much less common than than a child benefit, which is is um, uh, as as Mari points out in, in the Swiss context is is pretty universal across Europe and, and Japan and Australia and other places. Um, and I think yeah, the, there's a cost concern of there's there's more people total than there are just children, but also I think in in the U.S. and in a lot of places, people have a, a sometimes make a divide between the deserving and undeserving poor. Um, and this is something sociologists have written a lot about um, and how these ideas get uh, get developed. But I think children often fall in the deserving category for people um, sort of inherently. They, you can't blame them if they don't have a job. They're children. Um, and it's a lot easier to, to come up with reasons to blame or not want to help um, certain categories of adults. Lisa in Maplewood, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hello. Um, I have a question for your guest about if there's any work being done for people in poverty, but just working people in general about compensating parents for childcare. Uh, we know what that can cost when you have to pay for it. And do people ever talk about how many parents do the second shift, but they're not paid for that other job? Um, or they're adding a lot of value to the economy by taking care of kids, um, but we don't have a, a quantity or an amount of money for that. Yeah, and that's why I'm always careful to use the language of 
uh, women who work outside the home or any parents who work outside the home or in the paid workforce as opposed to just who work because obviously it's unpaid work, but it is work to be home with kids. So Dylan, what do you say? Sure. And I, I think there's there's a long um, activist history behind the idea of wages for housework. Um, Sylvia Federici, uh, who's who's at Hofstra, um, is I think the scholar most associated with that idea. But it was a major movement among uh, radical and Marxist feminists in the, the 1970s um, and I think has has a long and distinguished history. I think some have have thought of um, of the child credit and child allowances as a way of of implementing that. Um, I think this does get into a debate that sometimes happens in, in national politics. There are some conservatives who are sort of sympathetic to ideas like a child allowance um, on sort of traditional family grounds that they want to encourage people to have more kids. They want to support families with kids. Um, so they're attracted to it. Um, those same people tend to be fairly hostile to direct subsidies for child care, for, for subsidies to child care centers, for nannies, for au pairs. Um, because they have a particular notion of what a family should look like and, and a particular model they want to promote. Uh, and they view subsidizing childcare um, uh, outside the home as favoring one model of family over another, favoring working mothers over um, uh, sort of working outside the house mothers uh, ahead of stay-at-home mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think uh, there's more room for bipartisan compromise when it comes to just giving cash directly to parents regardless of their their care situation um but uh it it's also true that um the amounts of money we're talking about for for the child credit um i mean we're talking about two thousand dollars a year maximum uh that doesn't get you very far in in a child care center in brooklyn say um we've got a few minutes left in the segment and I want to go to the other part of this deal. If they're going to extend the child tax credit for a few years, the Republicans are getting um, roughly $33 billion in business tax breaks for what they call more favorable treatment of research and development expenses. So for people in business out there wondering about that side of this deal, if it actually goes through Congress, what's in it? Sure. Uh, so most of the, the business tax provisions have to do with depreciation. So depreciation, if you've ever done business taxes, is you buy a thing for your business, uh, you uh, you buy a printer, uh, you can expense it, but do you expense it all at once in one year or do you have to deduct a cost over multiple years, which is generally worse for you? You want to make your taxes as low as, as possible right away. Um, and so the, uh, the package includes uh, provisions for, for immediate expensing of U.S.-based research and development, uh, and it also includes a provision called bonus depreciation, uh, which includes a, a bunch of other categories of goods in the things that you can you can expense all at once, that you can deduct on your taxes um, all at once, as opposed to spreading it out over, over a number of years. Um, my sense is that this is an area where economists disagree a lot over how important it is. Um, there's some economists I talked to who think that Sort of immediate expensing is is the most important thing in the world, and it gets uh, businesses to invest a lot more. Other people I talk to think this is just sort of a, a blatant giveaway for for corporations who would spend this money anyway. Um, either way, businesses clearly want it, um, and and I think uh, there's support both from Republicans and from uh, some sort of business friendly Democrats uh, for these provisions. Uh, so. Uh, 
definitely something that the business community has been looking for. Um, how, whether it's corporate welfare or, or a reasonable economic growth policy, your, your mileage may vary. Hey, I think Bill in Short Hills has another reason or argument that hasn't come up yet for the government subsidizing having kids. Bill, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, there was a, uh, a reference made to the importance of uh, having a lot of, you know, increasing the population. Uh, I'm 75, and I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, back then, uh, one parent could work, and the other parent could raise the kids, and you had a very comfortable life. Uh, the population back then is about a third of what it is now. And so what is the benefit of increasing the population? I would argue oh. that we'd probably be better off in stabilizing the population, if uh, not reducing it. Oh, you're making the opposite argument of what I thought you were <laughs> going to make. Uh, the, the opposite argument, just for the record, would be our um, aging population has skewed what the government has to spend money on so much that we're out of balance compared to a lot of other countries. We don't have enough young people compared to the number of old people. It's one of the arguments for um, large-scale immigration because uh, the immigrants tend to be young. We've talked about this on the show recently with respect to New York and the southern border and everything, um, that uh, if you know, that we need more young people. We need more children relative to the number of 90-year-olds in the country who are going to keep getting Social Security and Medicare on the taxpayer's dime. So so I guess you could argue it either way, right? Either the world has a population pro problem and we shouldn't be increasing the population or we have a youth to, to aged person uh, ratio problem and we should be subsidizing or incentivizing more kids, Dylan. Yes, and I think that's that's uh, one reason, particularly some conservatives are are interested in this. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, one one point just for context is that the, the UN projects that uh, world population will peak uh, sometime late this uh, this century, um, whether that's the twenty seventies or the twenty eighties. I will probably be dead, um, and and so I, this isn't a problem I will have to, to deal with. But um, the the population concern of of the seventies and eighties. Uh, was was pretty successful. Um, uh, even in uh, developing countries, birth rates are falling. Um, and one thing that means is we might be able to use immigration to, to plug some of these financing holes um, in the next few decades. But if the whole world's population is falling at some point, um, immigration doesn't doesn't do much. Um, the total stock of people is falling. Um, that's uh, blessedly a problem uh, for for after my time, but mm. uh, but I think is is going to uh, take up more and more of our politics as as the century progresses. By the way, here's the the opposite grievance from Sachin in Los Angeles. Sachin, you're on WNYC. Hi there. Hey, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is like you know the single population is increasing significantly and from some projections it's going to be 40 to 50 percent um and what i wonder is how is always the burden on single people there's no tax credits for single folks the uh i mean all the benefits that you see from you know, taxes to school benefits etc that are that are removed from everybody's taxes there's a there's an uneven burden on single folks yes 
But and of I course, the ar- like the argument stuff. is this isn't these aren't tax credits or other benefits, so parents can go on vacation or something like that. It's that children are dependents, and the uh, the economy such as it is um, in the private sector isn't enough to keep them all well fed and educated. So the presumption I, is I, single single people can much more easily fend for themselves. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a philosophy of responsibility, right? Like, I, it is everybody has a choice in terms of having kids or not having kids. And my perspective is that, you know, I, I'm not saying you should not give benefits, but it should be equal across the board. It shouldn't be that one group or cohort gets uh, gets penalized for the other right. one, and that's not fair. Such and I. I hear. All right. So many points of view on the table as we come to the end of this segment. Uh, But Dylan from Vox, tell us one other thing just on the politics. I said way back in the intro that even though this deal seems to have been struck between a leading Democrat and a leading Republican in Congress, it isn't done yet. And if I'm reading this right, they only have until the end of the month to get it passed so that it would apply to the 2023 tax year that people are now starting to fill out their taxes for. So what are the politics of of this in Congress and are there factions who might block it? Sure. So I think there there's a couple of forms of opposition we've seen. One is uh, Republicans who don't care particularly about the, the business tax cuts and and oppose the, the child uh, credit changes. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see some opposition from them. Uh, a more surprising angle is uh, some sort of Democrats have criticized it for not going far enough or for, for giving too much to corporations and not enough to, to children. Uh, Rosa DeLauro, um, who has been a, a historically a big backer of the child credit, has has signaled that she might oppose the, the bill uh, oh. on those grounds. From Connecticut. Um, uh, from Connecticut, represents New Haven. Um, and yeah, so I, my, my very scientific view is that the, it maybe has a 50-50 shot. Um, but uh, Congress has passed things that, that affect sort of ongoing tax years before, um, and uh, they, they did that in, in 2021 by, by changing how unemployment was treated. Um, so it could happen. Um, I can say I've, I volunteer at a, a tax site where we do tax preparation for, for low-income families, and we're all, we're all bracing for if it suddenly changes in the middle of our tax season, and um, well, that might be, be a little more paperwork for us, it would be a, a, a win for our clients. So something to watch between now and the end of the month in Congress. And we leave it there with Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer at Vox. And now we know a volunteer for filling out uh, tax returns for low-income families. Thanks so much for coming on, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me, Brian.